So as a church, we're reading through John's Gospel. And we've discovered that the first part of this Gospel could be described as a book of signs. Jesus does seven dramatic miracles, all of which are amazing in and of themselves. But their true worth is found when we see that they point to something deeper. These signs tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to achieve. So far, we've seen the sign of Jesus turning water into wine, which pointed to his plan to make a new way for cleansing people from their sin. From now on, purification would come through his blood. The second sign was the healing of the official's son. Jesus demonstrated his power over all that damages humanity and that he's come to fully heal his people. The third sign was the healing of the lame man by the pool. In raising the man to his feet, Jesus displayed his plan to raise us all from death. Now the fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000. An extraordinary miracle where Jesus took a little boy's lunch and fed a whole crowd from it. And we read this story two weeks ago. But as yet, we've not had it explained to us. We've not yet discovered all that this sign points towards. But we need not wait any longer. Because tonight, Jesus himself is going to explain it to us. Now the conversation between Jesus and the crowd that we're going to read is very long. So I've split it into three sections to try and help us understand it. We're going to read a section. I'm going to share a few reflections. And then we'll sing an appropriate hymn. And by the end, as we hold all of this together, we'll hopefully realise that we have just heard some of Jesus' most important teaching on who he is and what he has come to achieve. So we're going to begin with John 6, verses 25 to 35. And Anne is going to read this for us. The evening arrived. The boys took their places. The master in his cook's uniform stationed himself at the copper. His pauper assistants ranged themselves behind him, and the gruel was served out, and a long grace was said. The gruel disappeared, and the boys whispered each other and winked at Oliver, while his next neighbours nudged him. Child as he was, he was desperate with hunger and reckless with misery. He rose from the table, and advancing to the master, basin and spoon in hand, said, somewhat alarmed at his own temerity, Please, sir, I want some more. Oliver Twist asking for more is one of the most famous moments in all of English literature. And who could blame him? A poor orphan boy, terribly treated, racked with hunger, and we can well understand his request for more food. He simply wanted to stay alive. I wonder how many times we find ourselves yearning for more in life. As we collapse into the chair, exhausted at the end of another busy week, we find ourselves thinking, surely there is more to life than this. The daily routine of wake, eat, work, eat, sleep, repeat. 
as we try to comfort family who are struggling. We find ourselves thinking, surely there is more to life than bringing in enough money to put food on the table, staving off illness, saving for retirement. As we watch atrocities on the news or stand at the graveside of a friend, we find ourselves thinking, surely there is more to life than just eking out our days until the inevitable end comes. As human beings, we so often are hungry for more, so often dissatisfied, and we look almost anywhere to try and fill the hole. Foreign holidays, fancy diets, new hobbies, TV entertainment, the bottom of a pint glass. We try them all, and yet still very few of us find true contentment. Like Oliver Twist, we want to cry out, please, sir, I want some more. Our reading begins just one day after the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the crowd have tracked Jesus down again with only one thing on their mind. They want some more. In many ways, you can't blame them. There is much of the Oliver Twist orphanage about their lives. They live in a land run by cruel overlords, the Romans. Many suffer under the weight of taxation and struggle to get enough to eat. And as a result, many have begun to give up hope. Their lives have come to resemble a daily grind of drudgery. Of course they want more. They want more bread to eat, a free supply of food. They want this man of great power to go further and throw the Romans out. They want more miraculous entertainment to brighten their day. The crowd wanted more from Jesus. And we would have been exactly the same. But when this crowd finally catch up with Jesus after a mad dash around the Sea of Galilee and they present their request to him, Jesus has a rather challenging response. Verse 26. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. It's as if Jesus critiques them for their short-term motivations. Instead of thinking just about their stomachs and their own amusement, they need to look higher and deeper. Jesus has performed a few dramatic signs now, and it's about time they started reflecting on what they all pointed towards. We live in a world at the moment where many people are working very hard just to put bread on the table. Even here on Isla, people are working two, three, four jobs just to make ends meet. And even then, some of them are struggling. Food bank use is again on the rise. The Jewish people of Jesus' day knew a very similar reality. And Jesus uses this to give his teaching. He tells the crowd to stop working for the food that spoils and leaves them hungry again and instead start working for food that grants eternal life. Jesus is being ironic here. For as soon as he has used that word work, he then subverts it immediately. The crowd asks him, what must we do? The works that God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. 
The only work that Jesus requires of the crowd is for them to receive the gift that he has come to give them. Their work is to believe in the one that the Father has sent to rescue them. Jesus knows that the people will never be able to work enough to make their own satisfaction. They will never make enough money to be carefree and content. They will never grow strong enough to throw the Romans out on their own. And even if they did, another empire would soon come storming in after them. Neither will they ever be able to do enough work or keep enough rules to earn God's favour. Jesus wants the crowd to stop working for these short-term and vain things and instead put all their effort into responding to him. They are to open their eyes and their minds and their hearts and believe. Now, of course, none of us like to be challenged to our faces and neither did this crowd. So on hearing Jesus' words, they ask for more evidence that Jesus has the authority to do what he has just said. The crowd quote the Exodus story. Moses gave the people manna in the wilderness, daily bread that could keep them alive. They want a sign just like that. They want a sign that is obvious, a sign that is undeniable. They want a sign that proves their situation is going to change and quickly with Rome leaving as soon as possible. Of course, the irony of this request is huge. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish. What more of a sign do they need? And it never was Moses who provided the manna in the wilderness. For no human being can make food fall from the sky. That was the work of God. All God. The same God who was standing right in front of them at this minute in the person of Jesus. Once corrected on both these points, the crowd humble themselves somewhat. And in verse 34, their question changes dramatically. They ask Jesus to give them this bread that leads to eternal life. The bread he has spoken of. And Jesus replies with a great declaration. One of the most famous in scripture. John 6:35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the great I am. He is fully God. And as God, he knows the full answer to the needs of the human heart. And it's much more than just bread or money or political or military victory. Knowing Jesus is the only way to find satisfaction. Following Jesus is the only way to eternal life. This is the gift that he's come to give you and me. And all we need to do to receive it is to fully believe in him. So Jesus has offered some words of challenge and critique to the hungry crowds, not out of hardness of heart, but out of a deep desire for them to really come and understand who he is and what he will achieve. As with all good teachers, he now follows his challenge with some loving encouragement. In this next section of the conversation, Jesus makes three great promises to those who do take the step of faith and choose to believe in him. The first promise is security. Jesus continues in verse 37. 
those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus makes the promise that whoever comes to him will never be driven away. It's as if the Father has placed all believers into his hands and he will now personally work to keep and protect them. Jesus will see to it that none who believe in him will be lost. Instead, when they die, he will raise them up and give them eternal life. It's one of the most incredible promises of Scripture. Jesus holds on to his people even tighter than we hold on to him. Even when we have fallen for temptation, even when we are struggling with doubt, even when our lives continue beset with sin, Jesus will not let go. In the Exodus story, God did not choose to save Israel because they were special or good or significant in any material way. He rescued them and fed them with the manna and brought them to the promised land purely because he loved them. And had determined to be faithful to them. And so it is with God and us today. Our security is not found in our own devices or our own work efforts. It is found in the faithful love of God. He will not let go of us. And that should give us confidence. The second promise is about our destiny. And Jesus repeats himself again and again and again throughout this passage. The destiny for those who believe in him is eternal life. The crowd continued to question the teaching that Jesus is giving. Who is he to make such dramatic statements? Why? They watched him grow up. They know his parents. His father's just a lowly carpenter for goodness sake. How can this man declare that he has come down from heaven to feed them? And in response, Jesus points to the fact that he is the fulfillment of all that the prophets spoke of. He is the answer to all that was taught by God in days gone past. The crowd would not be surprised if only they would open their eyes to see that he is the promised one that they have been waiting for. And as Jesus has come direct from God, he is uniquely qualified to explain God's purposes. And God's good purpose is this. He wants to overcome all the destruction that death causes in the world and restore life to those he loves. Verse 47. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. On hearing this, the crowd again returned to talking about manna in the wilderness. They want a form of bread they can see with their very eyes, not a bread that empowers them for an eternity beyond this life. To this, Jesus is rather blunt. Come on, you lot, think about this. All your forefathers who did have the privilege of eating manna in the desert happened to them that's right they all died none of them are still here today are they so that manna was not all that it was cracked up to be was it god gave the manna to feed the people on their particular journey 
God has now given you me to feed you to eternal life. Eternal life is the, in the, with the presence of God is the true promised land. This is the destiny for all who believe. So he's made a promise about security. He's made a promise about destiny. His final promise is for communion. Jesus has declared that he is the bread of life and that the people must feed on him. And initially the Jews are horrified by this announcement. They knew that there were strict rules about eating flesh and blood. And like all of us, the thought of eating a human body was utterly abhorrent to them. But here Jesus is persisting with saying that his body must be eaten and his blood must be drunk to grant them eternal life. What can Jesus possibly mean by all of this? Well, clearly it must be a metaphor. For Jesus' body rose again and now sits on the throne of heaven. So no person in history has ever had opportunity to really eat his flesh. This eating and drinking is a metaphor for faith. Faith in Jesus' death on the cross. Faith in all the communion meals shared on the night before he died symbolises and remembers. When we think about it, eating is a powerful metaphor. Our food only comes to us once an animal has died. Be it a lamb, a cow, a pig or a chicken. Our roast dinner only arrives on the table once blood has been shed. For the vegetarians out there, even your grain has to be broken down and pummeled into flour before it can be consumed. Then we take that food and it enters our bodies. It goes to the deepest places, our innermost regions, and from there it does its work. Our food brings strength and energy. It develops muscles and promotes growth. It leads to our transformation. In a strange way, our food becomes part of us. Well, so too does faith in Jesus. If we put our trust in the death of Jesus, God enters our lives through his Holy Spirit. And from there, God almost becomes part of us. We are deeply united with him. And this great communion is formed between Jesus and his people. A communion very similar to that which Jesus had with his father himself. Listen to verse 56. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. It is this incredible intimacy that faith brings. This incredible communion with the God of heaven and earth that makes the way for us to be raised to eternal life. All the people here this evening who have put their belief in Jesus have God living in them. Just as our food is in our stomach. And from there, God will bring us to himself. So Jesus has challenged the crowd to give up their short-term thinking and their skepticism. And instead called them to believe in him. And now he's made some great promises as to what will happen if they do. They will know security every day of their lives as he holds on to them. They will realize that their true destiny is eternal life. 
and they will know intimate communion with God each and every day until they get there. So we reach the third part of the conversation. I hope you're managing to follow along. I know this is a complicated passage and I'm doing my best to explain it. I apologise if I'm not helping. But we now come to this final section. Jesus has proclaimed that he is the bread of life. If we feed on him, we'll find full satisfaction and eternal life. But sadly, many of the crowd are still struggling with his teaching. They come just looking for another miracle. They wanted to be entertained and blessed. They wanted further evidence that Rome would soon be done for. They didn't expect to be challenged on whether they would personally believe in Jesus or not. And consequently, the reaction of many is negative. They declare that this language of eating flesh and drinking blood is offensive to them. They still struggle with this concept that God could come down from heaven in the person of a humble carpenter's son. And to be fair to the crowd, Jesus does not finish by making it any easier for them. He now states something else. He has come down to earth like manna from heaven, but one day soon he will be returning from whence he came. He will ascend back to where he was before. Now this dashes the hopes of the crowd. They had hoped that Jesus had come to defeat Rome and reign on Israel's throne in Caesar's place. Now he is telling them that he will soon depart with no material change in the political department. It is almost as if Jesus is saying to them that their spiritual needs are more important than their earthly needs right now. And of course that is what he is saying, but not in the way that they think. One day soon, Jesus would ascend back to heaven. And from there he would reign on a heavenly throne. And then one day in the future, he will come back to bring that reign to earth. And on that day, heaven and earth will come together. And then finally, Rome and all the tyrant empires like them will be no more. One day the people will see. One day they will fully understand Jesus hasn't come to throw Rome out or to fill their dinner tables now. He's come to make the way for all of creation to be set free and for all people to receive God's good gifts in abundance. As Jesus announces these great things, he declares in verse 63 that this is God's word and every bit of it will come to pass. But sadly, like the Israelites in the wilderness with their manna, the people were quick to start grumbling when they did not get exactly what they wanted. Rather than stick around and allow Jesus to explain more, large numbers of the crowd started turning their backs in verse 66 and walking off. And suddenly then, we realise an important reality. As believers wait for all God's plans and purposes to come to be, Many challenges will come our way. People around us, our friends and family, will drift away and turn back. 
We ourselves will go through moments of doubt as we question why God is taking so long and why he doesn't step in to change everything right now. We will be tempted to give up on faith altogether. And this well describes Judas, who gets a mention at the end of this chapter, doesn't it? Judas was one of the 12 apostles, chosen by God, loved by Jesus, invited into close relationship. Yet amid life challenges, Judas lost heart. He watched people walk away from Jesus. He watched the awful rule of Rome go on and on. And as a result, he wavered. He was tempted by money. He was tempted by the thought that he could force Jesus' hand and make him hurry up. But of course, he was wrong. Judas is a great lesson for us all. God has chosen us. He has enabled us to have faith. He has granted us his love and real assurance in life. But true security is only found if we have no other security except God's mercy. When Judas took things into his own hands, the consequences were disastrous. And we must not do the same. In place of Judas, it is Peter who offers us the good example of what we should do when challenges come our way. Jesus asked his friends, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter stakes everything on Jesus. Peter acknowledges his need of living bread. Peter will make many mistakes. He will have many doubts. He will get much wrong in his life. But through all the challenges to come, he will remain dependent on Jesus. Peter ate the bread of life and received eternity. We are to do the same.